Good morning, everybody. I want to invite you guys to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 106, where we're going to spend the next bit of our time together this morning. Psalm 106. It's almost at the halfway point of your Bible. So if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, first of all, we want to say we've got some Bibles here we'd like to give you. They're at the middle of each aisle. Someone sitting down in the middle would be happy to pass it to you if you need one. And then you can open it up almost in the middle and be pretty close to where we're going to be today. It will really help you to have this in front of you this morning because we're going to cover a lot of text and I'm going to be referring to a lot of specific things that are in this psalm and it'll be really useful to you to be able to, to look with me as we move quickly through it. Um, and then we'd love for you to take that copy of the Bible uh, as our gift to you and to, to read it uh, this week and to talk to us later if you have questions about what you read there. That, that would make us so happy. This morning we're going to be in Psalm 106 as we continue to look at how Israel responded to what God did for them in Egypt. Early this year, we talked about the Exodus, one of the founding moments of Israel's history, their life as a nation. Now this summer, we're looking at how to respond to God's redemption, uh, how they responded and how we could respond as well. Uh, I think it's timely that we're doing that this week with the Independence Day celebrations coming up later this week. You know, behind all the fireworks and the hot dogs and the watermelons and pool parties, there's, behind it all is an event a founding event with ideals in it and founders involved in it and a relentless appetite among Americans for thinking back to that event and what it meant and, and who was involved with it and what we can learn from them. Uh, there's a reason that, that this, this event not only gets celebrated every year but gets retold in movies and films and, 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 and books and, and even musicals. It's everywhere because there's an appetite for this sort of founding moment. What does it mean? Who are we? And what can we learn from those who were there? Israel treated the Exodus like that. It was their independence. And they treated their founding generation much like we have tended to treat our founders. They talked about them a lot. They unpacked their lives a lot for what they could learn. And one of the things that makes my trust in the Bible soar is the fact that that as they looked back on their founding generation, they didn't feel the need to whitewash the lives of their heroes. They didn't, they didn't knock off the rough edges in the, the lives, the choices that their heroes made. In fact, a common theme throughout the Bible, and especially in Psalms like the one we're going to look at today, is the founding generation as an example for us of what not to do. So last week in Psalm 105, we looked at a psalm that talked about God's redemption and then gave us several specific ways we should respond when we experience God's grace in our lives. What I said last week is that Psalm 106 is a kind of companion psalm to 105. But instead of telling us how we should respond, it tells us how we shouldn't. And the way that it gets us there is to provide us with a detailed account of Israel's failure to remember the God who was for them Israel's clinging to their own desires for their life over and against those that God had for them. And Israel's decision to turn to gods they could barter with rather than trust the God who had redeemed them to be for them on his terms. What we're going to look at carefully today is not easy to look at. In fact, I just want to be straightforward with you this morning. What we're going to do today is, is heavy work. We're going to give a detailed account of what unbelief looks like. We're going to look carefully at how God responds to sin. We're going to straightforwardly consider this psalm's promise that where sin exists, God will punish it. And we're going to look through God's response to our sin to a surprising response that comes on the other side. We're going to look to the grace that is the central theme of the Bible. Grace that meets sinners in their sin, despite their sin, with love. We're going to do this work together today with God's help because we trust that we need the wide-ranging testimony of the Bible, even the darkest parts. And that in this lesson that Israel applied from her history to her people is a lesson we need today that we can't live without. So this morning, what we're going to do is, is cover a lot of verses looking for the main melodic line, as one, as one teacher has put it. What is the main 
theme of music that's coming out of all these verses. More verses than we're going to be able to go into detail by detail. We're going to try to hear the theme that the music plays to us from this psalm. And I'm going to break it down for us in two steps. We're going to look at what I'm calling the anatomy of unbelief from Israel's history. How does their unbelief take shape? What form does it have? That'll help us to recognize it in ourselves as we look closely at them. And then we'll look at God's surprising response to Israel's unbelief and know how we can expect to be treated by him too. Now, what I want to do is first read the the opening verses of this psalm. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6 and ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. Then I'll have you seated, and we'll go ahead and read through the rest of the psalm in just a moment. Friends, this is God's word to us this morning from Psalm 106. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. This is God's word. You can be seated. This last verse that I read to you guys, verse 6, it establishes the tone of the psalm. After these opening verses that are a call to praise and to thanksgiving, the psalm turns to its main subject, and it's not pretty. It's remarkably honest and humble. In verse 6, we have this psalmist who, based on where the psalm goes, is most likely writing during the time of Israel's exile, long after the events that are described in Exodus long after Israel has known the promised land that was given to them and squandered it. In a time when Israel was scattered to the winds at the mercy of nations who did not love them, this psalmist looks back to figure out what happened. Looking back from where he stood, it would be easy to blame it all on his fathers. There was certainly blame to go around. But the remarkable thing about what this psalmist says here is that he's part of Israel's problem, not outside of it. He is not a victim in what has happened to them, but a perpetrator. The psalm begins with a remarkable honesty, a confession of solidarity, and it begs for us the question we're going to spend the next few minutes trying to answer. How have they sinned? What iniquity and wickedness have they done? Friends, I want to warn you, buckle your seatbelts. I'm going to read through these examples before we break down this anatomy of unbelief, zooming in on the main parts so that we can understand what unbelief looks like and where it comes from. But these examples are not easy reading. I'm going to pick up in verse 7 and I'm going to read to the very end of the psalm. So if you have your Bible, follow along with me as I do that. Picking up in verse 7. Remember the question. He's just confessed. We have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We've done wickedness. Now he's going to explain where and how that happened. So our fathers, when they were in Egypt, they didn't consider your wondrous works. They didn't remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy, and the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. 
they did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. Verse 16 jumps ahead in Israel's history. You'll notice several different examples. They're not in historical order. They're all just reinforcing the points this author wants to make. Jumping ahead. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. These were the leaders of a kind of coup against Moses. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for an image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said, he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and didn't obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then... They yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, it's a false god of their neighbors, and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit, Moses' spirit, bitter, And he spoke rashly with his lips. This next section jumps ahead to Judges. They didn't destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. And they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood. The blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hands of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God. Gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but as we've read, what we've covered is is a lot like a repeating spiral. Reminds me a lot of our time in Judges a couple years back, where we saw the same cycle happen over and over again. Israel's disobedience, stemming from their unbelief, leading to God's punishment of their sin, leading to their distress and oppression, leading to God's compassion on them when he sees them hurting, leading to God's redemption of them and establishment of them, just as he said he would in their land, leading to more forgetfulness, more unbelief, more judgment, and more mercy over and over 
like a toilet bowl effect. This story plays out. That's what we've just covered. What I want to try to pull out from, from, from this story about Israel's experience and specifically about their unbelief so that we can learn from it are several important moments in this history that reveal to us what was going on. The progression that their unbelief followed or what I've called the anatomy of their unbelief. What are its parts? So that we can learn from it and, and Lord willing, see ourselves in it. I want to pull out three vignettes, if you will, that help us to see the whole picture. The account of Israel's unbelief begins with a movement of the mind and the heart. A movement that's so subtle, it's dreadfully easy to miss altogether. I want you to look back at verse 7 for the first step in their unbelief's formation. Notice the fateful movement. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, first of all, did not consider your works. God was acting in power to save them over and over. But they didn't record it. They didn't review it. They didn't analyze it, break it down, make sure that they saw all its parts. His power didn't make an impression. It was taken for granted by them. It was a kind of background noise for them. Like a kind of music that you've got on in the background while you're really focused on studying for an exam or writing some paper or something. The music, is, if, you're, if you're really focused on your work, it's just there. But you may not even be able to tell anybody what songs you just heard. You may not be able to hum it back to them if they ask you. For Israel, God's power didn't make that impression. They didn't consider it. And that simple neglect made it easier for them to... next forget his love they didn't consider your works then verse 7 says they didn't remember they didn't remember the abundance of your steadfast love they forgot who they were dealing with in other words and they forgot how this God felt toward them it's only after ignoring his power and forgetting his love for them that they could rebel against him verse 7 not considering his works, not remembering his abundant love, they rebelled by the Red Sea. So friends, before we move any further, I want to make sure you don't miss the power of this simple observation. The catalog of Israel's sin that we've just covered together. That detailed resume of disobedience. A resume that is comprehensive and devastating and includes the sacrifice of their own children to demons. The path that ends in child sacrifice begins with a failure to pay attention. To simply notice what he's done. To do the work described last week in Psalm 105 of cataloging in relentless detail what you've seen from him. The next vignette I want to draw uh, draw your attention to comes from the Red Sea. It takes us from the Red Sea where Israel was delivered by God's power from Pharaoh's army to the wilderness and to the mountain of Sinai where God's law would be delivered to them. They're at Sinai in this wilderness waiting for God's law. And verses 13 and 14 show us the next progression. They soon forgot his works, same as in verse 7. And they did not wait for his counsel. When they forgot who they were dealing with, how powerful he is, how loving, they weren't able to wait for him to do what he would do on his time, on his terms. Forgetting who he was, instead of waiting for him, their own vision came into crystal clear focus. They knew what they wanted. They knew how to get there. And their desires for their life, their agenda took over. It's what verse 14 calls a wanton craving. Forgetting who they're dealing with, they have a hard time waiting on him to deliver and into their mind comes this version of the life that they want, an optimal life. And they attach to this optimal life a craving 
that controls them. They are slaves to their desires. Being slaves to what they now want, their vision for their life, made it harder for them to accept what God actually gave them. Verse 24 talks about them despising the pleasant land. God had promised to give them land. Eventually, he does give it to them. They get it, and they start murmuring. They start complaining. They don't like what he's given to them. They have another view of the life that they want, and it's taken hold of their heart. So it's little wonder that rather than wait for him, now that their heart belongs to this new agenda, rather than waiting and receiving what he gives, instead they make images for themselves. We talked a lot about what this means when we were talking about the Ten Commandments and the command not to make any images. It's a way of of trying to get access to the power of the divine on your terms. When you create an image, you're creating a kind of controller, a kind of remote control for that power, a place where you can access it and push the right buttons so that you get the right outputs. Knowing what they wanted, not wanting to wait for God to give them what he said he would give them, they make images for themselves that they think they can control. That's what... That's what the following verses bring our attention back to. Verse 19 and following. They made a calf. They said, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And they offered it the worship they thought would get the results they wanted. And in doing that, verse 20 says, they were exchanging the glory of God, the one who had worked his wonders, the one marked by an abundant and steadfast love, a God who is gloriously free and for them, They exchanged that glory for a metal image of an ox that even if it were real would be defined by the eating of grass. Friends, you only do something like that when the glory of God who is free becomes a threat to you. A threat to what you want. When a God of your own making actually seems like a safer option. I have often tended to think about unbelief as an intellectual issue. You know, as the need for more proof than what we have. Philosophical problems to be worked out. And that's part of it. But in the Bible, far more often, unbelief is the product of desire. You believe what you want. You don't believe what you don't want. And in Israel's case, their desires had so captured their hearts that a God who might not share their vision for their future was a God they did not want. They preferred their own. And this brings us to a third moment, a third vignette to make sure you noticed. It is the shocking conclusion to the list of Israel's sins that comes out now in verses 37 to 39. What started with them making their own images that represented for them the God who had brought them out of Egypt, easily shifted to taking on for themselves the gods of their neighbors. They looked around. Their neighbors seemed to be prospering. They wanted what their neighbors had. So they figured they would tap into their neighbor's power source. So they worshipped Baal, one of the common gods of that area. And verses 37 and 39 show us how far they were willing to go in taking on the practices of their neighbors to make their vision for their life reality. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters. Friends, this is not hyperbolic. This is literal. This is what they did. Some in Israel, following the practices of their pagan neighbors, actually killed their own children to appease or to woo false gods that those neighbors worshipped. What was this? How did they get there? Why Why would they do it? I think we need to be very careful here to resist the temptation uh, to, uh, to think that it's because ancient people didn't care about their kids. Because that's not what this is. The text, I believe, repeats this reference to their daughters and their sons for emphasis. It's meant as a kind of exclamation point. They're daughters! They're sons! 
Because their children, friends, were not less precious to them than, than your children are to you, than my children are to me. What they desired, they wanted so badly. They had closed their fists so tightly around their vision of the good life that they would spare nothing, not even the lives of their own children, to get it. And don't miss the assumption behind all pagan religion, all the idolatry that so easily turned their heads, the assumption that led them to sacrifice their own kids. You only get what you pay for. If what you want from them is expensive, you have to offer them what's most precious to you. But it's always and only business. This is the most stark version of Israel's unbelief. But it's the same story that started in verse 7. They forgot the abundance of his steadfast love. That you don't have to pry good things out from his hands as if he doesn't want to give them to you. And they took on the assumption that they learned from their neighbors that was already in their heart. That you have to pay for any blessing you expect to get from his hand. It's why the psalmist says in verse 39 that they played the whore in their deeds. It is a stark image that is the Bible's most common and powerful way of describing what this sort of idolatry always is. Where the relationship you have with God is merely transactional. You are for hire, and so is He. There's no real intimacy here. There's not exclusive and loving devotion. There is a false intimacy that is bought and paid for. And before you get to this vision of God, as if He needed something from you, as if he would only give you what you paid him for before you get there. You have to stop considering his works. That this is a God of power that cannot be domesticated. And you have to forget the abundance of his love. This is not a God you have to pay off. This is the portrait of Israel's unbelief. It is not easy to look at, but we cannot look away. Because what was in their hearts is in ours. And that truth adds urgency to what we need to look at next. The other main theme, the other main melodic line running through this psalm alongside and in and out of Israel's unbelief is God's response to their unbelief, and it will surprise you. There are two ways in which God's response in this psalm is surprising. The first surprising thing about God's response, surprising to us, I believe, here in the 21st century, here in the West where we live, the surprising thing about God's response is that at every turn, His response is to punish Israel for their unbelief. Instinctively, at a gut level, this, I believe, is the first and most obvious surprise for many of us. As common as the theme of Israel's unbelief, at every stage of their unbelief, we're told about God's judgment for their sin. It is relentless. It is unfailing. And according to the Bible, it is just. It's right that He punished their sin. Just a couple of examples from this psalm. Verse 16, or verse 15, rather. He sent a wasting disease among them. Jump to verse 17. When the the coup happened, men were jealous of Moses. They rose up against him, and what did God do? The earth opened and swallowed them and their families. Fire also broke out in their company. Verse 18. The flame burned up the wicked. That's what he did. Jump to verse 23. 
after they made this metal calf for themselves, he said he would destroy them if it were not for Moses standing in the breach pleading for them. Verse 26, God raises his hand, swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness because of their complaining, because of their rejection of what he's given. Verse 29, a plague broke out among them after their sacrifices to Baal. And jumping to the present day, for them, from the perspective of their exile, where, where God had sent powerful nations to come in and to capture their people and to take them back to, to these lands that weren't theirs, to be ruled over by people who didn't love them. Verses 40 and 41, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people who were pouring out the blood of their own children. And he abhorred his heritage and gave them into the hands of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. At every turn, God punishes the sin that Israel commits against them. And friends, what you should know, that's even clearer if you zoom out from this psalm into the broader picture of the Bible and the story that it tells, what you should know is that this, this judgment of God, this response to sin, it's not impulsive. It isn't rash. It isn't a burst of uncontrollable anger that he would come to regret later. It isn't like a stressed out father annoyed by his children who just spouts off. This response to sin is consistent, even constant, as a part of what makes him a holy God worthy of worship. We see a little bit of this even in our own lives, in our own response to certain sins and to what we expect of others and their response to sin. Normally, we, we don't value detachment or aloofness or a kind of shrug of the shoulders if someone's got close proximity to child trafficking. If you knew that, if, if, a, if a person knew that their neighbors next door were running a ring of trafficking and you knew what they were doing with these children that they kept in their possession and you just thought, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't choose to do that, but you know, each to his own. What we would say about that person is that their moral compass is broken. That they aren't seeing what's really happening here. That their casualness about that sin is a moral flaw in them. And if it were a prosecutor who responded that way or a judge who responded that way, we would say, you need a different job. You're not fit for the office you hold. That's what we would say about them. We get a little glimmer in our own hearts, in our response to certain sins, of what the Bible says is always in God's response to sin. Because every sin, the Bible says, that any one of us commits, because it's committed against an infinite God, has an infinite value. An infinite weight that He sees clearly. And that he is passionately committed to setting right. We celebrate passionate opposition to sins like child trafficking as we should. Because that's righteous. The Bible celebrates God's commitment to punish sin in exactly the same way. He is not detached. He is not aloof. And that's not because he's easily offended. But because he's holy. Because he sees things as they are. And he always responds the right way. Does God's response to Israel's sin surprise you? Does it seem to you like an over-the-top reaction to what Israel's done? Or maybe even does, does it seem to you to be beneath the God of love that you've come to expect from the Bible? I wonder. I just want to give you a couple of things to chew on if that's where you're, the way you're responding right now. One thing I say to you, friends, is that if that's how you're responding to the idea of a God who judges sin in the way that this psalm describes, the, the one thing I'd say to you is that the, the only place I know of to find a God of love outside my own wishful thinking is the Bible. You won't find it in nature. You won't find it in other major religions, not like this. 
The only place I know to go of to find a God of love for sinners is the same place, even the same psalm that shows me a God of passionate, relentless, and unfailing opposition to sin. And our intellectual honesty means accounting for both things that we find in this one place. Does your conception of God account for them both? If it can't, friends, and I want to warn you in another another way, to be suspicious of your own cultural location. You think the way you think. You react the way you react. Not in some sort of vat, but as, as, as a person who's caught up in, embedded in a web of influences beyond your recognition and control like everybody else who's ever lived. Do you know, friends, that our time, our place conditions us to respond to a God of judgment in a different way than other places or other times. And we should not be so arrogant as to assume that our gut level reaction to a God of judgment has a pride of place, a privilege over that of other places and other times, other peoples. We have to be careful about the way we're conditioned by our culture and try to look through it and press past it. What we're told here is something the Bible merely announces and doesn't try to defend. That sin against God is categorically different in scale and significance from anything we might do to one another. It has an infinite significance that deserves the kind of judgment we've read about here. And what we feel about it Conditioned as we are by the time and place where we live is irrelevant if it's true. If it's true. And if it's also true that part of the effects of sin is, that, is our ability to see. So that not buying this picture of God's reaction to sin is part of what confirms the truth of this picture. If that's true. And we are as blind as Israel was then friends, you you may be in great danger and not know it. Recently I was talking to a friend about um, uh, a recent television series called Chernobyl. Maybe you guys have seen buzz about this in the press. recently watched it and it's a hard thing to watch. It's not for everyone, but very sobering. And one of the scenes that struck me most in this series is right after the Chernobyl disaster as the the nuclear power plant is spewing radioactive waste up into the air. Uh, People from the village think that it's just a fire at the plant. And they're standing on a bridge looking out at the fire far in the distance, probably miles away, just watching it out of interest. And the camera, meanwhile, shows you this this haze that they can't see, this, this little flecks of ash landing on them, breathed in by them as they laugh and play. They're completely immune to the danger that they face. And they'll go to bed that night, like every other night, not knowing what they've just been exposed to, not aware of the threat that they now carry in their own body, blind to it. Every person who stood on that bridge that night died. And the Bible tells us, friends, that facing God's judgment, maybe perhaps when we feel the weight of it the least, we are in the same position. What we feel is irrelevant. Friends, despite what you may feel, if you're not in Christ this morning, this is you. You're enjoying God's gifts not worshiping him as the giver of those gifts, facing a just judgment for your sin against him. But there, there is hope for you if you'll acknowledge the truth. Because there's a second response that's even more surprising than the first. It comes out over and over in this psalm. And nothing we've seen from Israel 
and nothing we've seen from God's judgment of their sin prepares us for this second response. Look again at the prayer of verse 47. At the end of this long list of Israel's sin and unbelief and God's judgment of them, the psalmist gets to verse 47 and he prays, Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations. And then he has the audacity to say, Do this so that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. The defining characteristic of this history of Israel's sin is that they failed to give thanks to him and did not glory in his praise. They didn't notice. Oh, but now this time we will. We swear, this time, if you'll save us again, this will be the time that we remember and praise you. Who is this guy? What is he thinking that he can pray like this to this God after what they've been through? Friends, if this prayer does not amaze you, then you've missed the point of the psalm so far. God owes them nothing at this point. He's been overlooked as the source of all they already have. And now, God is being asked for more. Why would this guy pray like this? Friends, he he, he prays like this because he has been paying attention. He's been paying attention to the surprising response of God over and over who has relentlessly been about saving his people just as relentlessly as he's been punishing them. Over and over, when this God sees their distress, the distress that his judgment has brought on them, he's moved to compassion and he saves them from the consequences of their own sin. It happens in verse 8. They rebel against him at the Red Sea. They want to go back to Egypt. Were there not enough graves in Egypt? They cry out to him. And yet, for his own same sake, verse 8 says, he saved them. After he'd saved them, powerfully, in an unmistakable display of his grace in their life, what happens? Well, when Moses takes his time up on the mountain, they get tired of waiting, and they make a calf that they can worship and control to try to domesticate his power. When he announced he would destroy them, Moses prays to him, please show compassion, show mercy, and he turns away his wrath. And even in exile, ruled over by those who hate them, verses 44 and 45 talk about God there looking on their distress, distress they deserve, distress he brought to them. And what does he do? He hears their cry, and for their sake he remembers his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his love over and over again. This psalmist prays an audacious prayer because he remembers what his fathers forgot. God's relentless, abundant, ever-flowing, and steadfast love. That's his only hope. And that's why he prays. But why should he expect a response? Why has God saved them before? Why should he save them again as if this time he'll get the thanks that he deserves? There are two clues in this psalm. Two answers that go hand in hand that help us understand God's response and that ground our only hope. The first clue is in verse 8. He saves for His name's sake. He saved them because by saving them despite their sin, He's showing the world something about who He is. In Exodus, that's a theme that came out over and over again. It's what he does. He does what he does in relationship with Israel so that through Israel, the world gets to know who he is, what he's like, what they can expect from him. He saves them, even when they don't deserve it, so that he can show the world that he's not like other gods, that his services are not for hire, that you get from him something you could never possibly pay for. That's what we mean by his glory. His commitment to glorify himself is a commitment to show the world who he is, how wonderful he is, how unlike other gods. But to really understand this clue and to see it in the way we need to, we need to make sure we recognize clue number two. Otherwise, we might misunderstand number one. On a a quick glance at verse eight, where we see that he saves for his own name's sake, we might think, oh... He's just self-serving. He's just egomaniacal, like most normal, powerful leaders that we might come to expect. 
He's just in this for him, is what we might think. But that's not the image we're supposed to get here at all. If you want narrowly self-serving, if you want egomaniacal, if you want a God that's just about whatever he wants from life, if he's just looking to sort of pad his, his pockets, so to speak, well, then, then you need to look at the gods of the pagan world, of Israel's neighbors, the kind they sacrifice their kids to. Those are the gods who only give as good as they get. Theirs is the power that's for hire and nothing more. But this God, this God who saves for his own name's sake, wants you to know this about him. He doesn't save because you paid him the right amount. He doesn't save because you pressed the right buttons or cracked some sort of code to his good graces. He saves because it's who he is to save. He saves because of his abundant love. And he saves, verse 45, clue number two, for their sake. For their sake, he remembered his covenant. In verse 8, it's for his sake. In verse 45, it's for their sake. They both go hand in hand. Because he wants to get his name out. And what he wants known about his name is that he saves for love. Not because they paid him, but because he loves them. Because when they're in distress, he can't take it. Because his abundant love gushes like a fountain that won't ever stop. It's just who he is. He's not like other gods. And that's what he wants known about his name. It's because of this love, this same love that takes sin too seriously to ever look away, to just shrug his shoulders at it. It's this, because of this love, this, this love that loves too faithfully to let sin have the final word that we see the most surprising response of all. God answers the prayer of verse 47 in the person of his own son. Friends, the back and forth that we've traced through this psalm, judgment, relentless, mercy, relentless is a tension that will carry you all the way through the Old Testament and never get resolved. How can God punish sin as he must do if he's holy and still love his people as he must do because that's who he is? How is it that he can remember his covenant, remember who they are to him even though they've forgotten him? when he knows the sins they've committed must be addressed. Is God's love unconditional or is it conditional? It's both and only through Jesus Christ. Because it's in his own son that he fully accounts for the infinite weight of every sin ever committed by every person who will ever trust in Jesus. He doesn't turn away. He doesn't shrug his shoulders. He doesn't consider himself above being affected by the little things that are done down here by his children. He sees the weight of sin and absorbs it in his son. And because it is his son, his own child sacrificed, not not asking us to sacrifice our kids, offering up his own, that he's able to also at the same time love and deliver everybody who will ever trust in him. What should our response be to God's response? Friends, you need to know you have not done more to alienate God than Israel did and look at how he loves them. (laughs) Look how he loves them. You are not past saving. (laughs) You can pray this same prayer. Just take verse 47. Just pray it. You can pray this same prayer And in Jesus, you can know this prayer will be answered. All these prayers are yes from God in Him. And you can know the truth that first comes in the prophets and gets echoed around in the earliest sermons of Christianity and makes it into the letters we still read to this day. The truth that is offered to you this morning is a promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That means you. But friends, even though you haven't done more than Israel to alienate God, you also haven't done less than Israel either. To know God's love, you've got to be honest about your need for it. To me, the most strike, one of the most striking phrases in this psalm 
is that from verse 6? We and our fathers have sinned. No deflection. No blaming of what we inherited from someone else. Honest solidarity in our need for a Savior. That's what this psalm models for it. It'll have to be your response too to benefit from what Christ has done. Psalm 32. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. You will waste away as long as you keep it as your own. But when I acknowledged my sin to you and didn't cover my iniquity, I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Forgiveness is so much better than not needing it. And finally, friends, we need to know that the chain that ends in child sacrifice begins with a failure to consider God's works and remember His love. And that gives the deepest urgency to our relationships with one another in the church. One of my favorite descriptions of what the local church is supposed to be, what our friendships are meant to do, comes in Hebrews chapter 3, responding to a quote from the Old Testament about this stuff, Israel's forgetfulness. Hebrews chapter 3, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But instead, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There are your marching orders in your relationships with your friends. The purpose of our church is to protect us under God from the unbelief that derailed Israel time and time again. To make sure that every week in our worship and every week throughout our friendships, we are considering together the works of the Lord. And we are remembering the steadfast love of the God who has come to save us. Because otherwise we will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's our job. I'm going to pray now that God will help us to take it up. Father, we know that our only hope for hearing the, what, what we need from this psalm, from, from being freed from the blindness that afflicted Israel, and for remembering together what you have done is your spirit at work in us through your word and your people. And so we ask now, taking up the model this psalm sets for us despite the many times that we have neglected you we ask you again to be with us and for us for your name's sake because of your love not because we deserve it in Jesus name Amen